Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. This is Molly. So Molly, we're gearing up for the Olympics. We got Olympic fever. Olympic fever. 2010 game. Yes. And whenever I think about the Olympics, it takes me back to 1996 when the Olympics were in ATL, GA. Our home. Our home base. In Athens, Georgia as well. My, my hometown. Um, and the 1996 Olympics were particularly awesome for me, not just because they were here, but also because my family housed the family of the Canadian Rhythmic Gymnast Whoa. contestant. Yes, it was very exciting. We had a Canadian invasion <laughs> in our home. And uh, because of that, I caught the Rhythmic Gymnastics fever and, tra- <laughs> and tried to try to train myself to be a rhythmic gymnast, which involved lots of time ribbon dancing <laughs> on my patio. Maybe I shouldn't share that embarrassing detail, but there it is, folks. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty great time of my life. So how long did they stay with you? Oh, they were there for a few weeks. It felt like maybe it was shorter, but I mean, it felt like they were there for a while. Cause she, you know, she had to come down, uh, before the Olympics started for training and, and stuff like that. Did you get to go see her in the Olympics? Yes. Well, well we, I didn't get to see her compete because I can't remember why, uh, but we did get to go to the Olympic Village. Uh-huh. You had to have these special passes made. And uh, my favorite part of being at the Olympic Village was all of the free food that was out <laughs> for the athletes that you could just pick up. Lots of Nutri-Grain bars, juice boxes. Things that I loved as a child. Who doesn't love a good juice box? Yeah. But no, I have fond memories of those Olympics as well, both because I think they were so close in proximity to Mm -hmm. us, but also just it was sort of the perfect age to really kind of be in love with gymnastics. Oh, yeah. And that was the big story that year. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it does seem like girls, when they're watching the Olympics, fall into like figure skating camps and gymnastics camps. And that's sort of like the only thing. I feel that a lot of girls watch in the Olympics. I could be wrong, but I think that's the stereotype is that we watch gymnastics, we watch figure skating. Right. But I think what we're going to find out today is that that's not really the case. No, we're going to talk about the long and storied history of women in the Olympics because the Olympics are going on and we've all got the fever. Got the fever. And not surprisingly, in 1896, when the Olympic Games were revived, female competitors were not allowed. No, there are some quotes from the guy who revived the games. His name is Pierre de Coubertin. And uh, he's not a big fan of ladies sweating in public. No. Uh, exerting themselves in any way. So he he kept them out. Um, they were scared that it might, um, that sporting activity might leave women unable to have children. Yes, I think the quote is, not their tubes. Yes. And in addition, they even thought that uh, overly athletic women might Turn into men. Yeah. 1890s. What a crazy time that was for people. Those zany folks. But, you know, even though um, they weren't officially allowed, there was one lady who um, stood up for everybody. And she was a Greek marathon runner named Samathi Ravithi. And she sort of competed unofficially by running the entire race, except they didn't let her into the stadium because that was against the rules. Mm-hmm. But she basically ran the entire race um, that the men ran. And, um, you know, 
no one really paid attention to her because they didn't even think she'd be able to do it. And so that's why you'll sometimes see her in the record books as Melpomene, after the Greek muse of tragedy, because they just thought it was a tragedy that someone was even trying it. Meh. And, you know, it's not even like they had good um, role models in the ancient Olympic Games. I don't know if you know this, but married women were not even allowed to watch those ancient Olympic Games. Yeah, you know, weren't weren't uh, spectator seats just reserved for prostitutes and virgins? A very interesting crowd demo yeah. to go after is just those two. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's women don't have the greatest start. Um, but in 1900, they do say, "Okay, we'll let you into a um, few games. We'll let you do some ballooning, some croquet, maybe ride some horses." Yeah, Dennis. There, there were 23 women from uh, Great Britain, Switzerland, France, the U.S., and Bohemia who competed. But the funny thing was that British women did not play. They refused to play croquet because they thought that it was objectionable to stoop in a corset. How bizarre. Yes. Because now we associate that game with them. It's probably just uncomfortable, though, too. Well, I think most of the early Olympians were uncomfortable because they pretty much had to just tape everything down and leave no sign at all that they were female. Yeah, and even swimmers had to wear full-length stockings. Mm Mm-hmm. That'd be very modest. That'd be very modest. And sometimes when you're wearing a full stocking, it kind of hampers your athletic ability. And so those early years in the games were not were not great. So along comes old Alice Milliot, or Millier, we're not quite sure, of France. Of France, yeah. And she thinks that it is totally bogus that the IOC, or the International Olympic Committee, is not allowing women to, to compete in whatever sports they want. And so she decides that she's going to start up the Women's Olympics. Um, so she founds La Fédération Sportive Feminine Internationale. FSFI. Yes. And uh, this basically gets the women's games started. And the first competition was a one-day track meet in Paris in 1992. 1922. Oh, sorry, in 1922, Yes. Um, and there were a lot of people there. 20,000 people showed up mm-hmm. to see this happen. And, um, at the next, it, at the next event, it grew even more. And what's amazing about those first games, you know, it was basically, like you said, a one day meet, mainly track and field events. Mm-hmm. And all these people show up. I would think it was probably something of a joke. Yeah. You know, because, you know, they've got the real Olympic committee saying women can't sweat in public. But on that day, 18 athletes broke world records. I mean, 18 female athletes are breaking world records yeah. in one day. That's that's pretty good, right? I don't know statistics of breaking world records, but 18 seems like a lot in one day. Seems like a lot, especially if you're probably running in full-length stockings and corsets, maybe. So naturally, this is gaining attention. You know, you've got all these world records being broken, and that's when um, the International Olympic Committee starts paying attention. Is like, hey, now. Don't steal our thunder. We own the idea of the Olympics, and you ladies is crazy. The IOC even wanted them to change the name of the event to distinguish it from the real Olympics, if you will. So they had to start calling it the Women's World Games. And then they kind of started, Milliot and the IOC started brokering some deals to try to include more women's events in the actual Olympics. Yeah. I mean, she didn't go quietly from Women's Olympics to Women's World Games. She said, if I'm going to change the name, then I want you to allow... 10 more events for women in the regular Olympics. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she kept up her end of the deal. The Olympics people added five events. Yeah. So she did the best she could. And so they kept on holding um, women's games. In fact, 
because they only allowed those five events in, um, the British Women's Athletics Association boycotted um, the Olympics in Amsterdam. The first feminist boycott in Olympic history. Yeah. And, uh, and then in 1934, we have the, the last FSFI Games in London. And um, from there, you have gradually more and more women who participate in the Olympics. But there was this big, the thing that I don't understand, Molly, was there the biggest stink was made over the Olympic 800-meter race. Like, the IOC officials just could not stomach the idea of women competing in this 800-meter race, and it would take 32 years for women to actually be allowed to run this. Yeah, I mean, that was the big sticking point. That's why Milliot didn't want to close down her operation, but um, the Olympic Games kind of skunked her on it. But I think that was the race where uh, de Coubertin saw some women sweating and fainting and exerting themselves, and he was like, ho, 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 can't have this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Cannot have any exertion. So that was sort of why the 800-meter was uh was the big sticking point. And it's only been in the past Olympics, we got what was the last Olympics, Beijing. Yes. That we're really even coming close to closing the male female athlete gap. Right. They're saying 2012 London will be the first time there's equal participation by bo- both male and female athletes. Yeah, in Beijing we had 42% of the af- athletes is female. Um, and that was up from 34.2% in 96 in Atlanta. And th- what's kind of cool, according to the Wall Street Journal, is that the increase in female athletes is due both to sort of big countries like ours bringing more female athletes on board, but also smaller countries that don't necessarily, we don't necessarily think of, you know, bastions of women's rights, mm-hmm. but they're starting to bring athletes. I mean, there was one athlete that ran her trials wearing um, a full veil mm-hmm. because that's what, you know, her culture dictated and she didn't want to have to give that up to be in the Olympics, but she didn't want to cut short her Olympic dream either. So I think that we'll see more equality, but it's just, it's kind of shameful when you look back at the history and see that, you know, in the 1930s, they weren't allowing the women to stay in the Olympic village. It's, it's been a a long uphill road. Well, and I thought it was um, interesting too, that in China, they actually fund female athletes more than male athletes because they're more likely to bring medals home. Right. Because there's no competition for it. Yeah, and and big sponsors like Nike and Adidas. I think um, the uh, hijab that you just referenced was actually um, partially designed by, or the pants I think that she wore under it were designed by Nike. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are the the big sponsors are starting to uh, to give more attention where it's due um, to these female athletes. But there are still a couple of events especially with the Winter Olympics coming up that are closed off to women. And this has been a big sticking point. Yeah, let's talk about 20, 2010 for a bit since that's the one we are we are eagerly anticipating right now. The big story in terms of gender and the Olympics has been the sport of ski jumping. Yeah, and that's basically where you what you are go down a big ski down a big hill and mm-hmm. then go up and are propelled off. Yeah. And hang and then you midair do- and do the Cross. Tricks. Yeah. Ski I mean, jumping's awesome. I'm a fan of ski jumping. I've never been a fan of skiing since I sprained my knee, but. Well, I mean, not doing <laughs> ski jumping. I've never been skiing, Molly. But I'm saying, uh, watching ski jumping, it's, it's, it's a really cool sport. It's not like you would watch it and think, oh, we must not allow women to jump on skis. Such a high jump. Such a high, crazy jump with all those, for those tricks. All the tube nodding. And, <laughs> and there are plenty of women who don't think so either. Most notably, um, Lindsay Van. 
who is thought of as sort of the U.S.'s prime ski jumper. But you will not see her doing ski jumping at the Olympics. Yes, because the IOC has not lifted its ban on women in ski jumping. And it says that any sport that is going to be um, allowed in the Olympics has to have at least two previous world championship competitions. And women's ski jumping held their first world championship in 2009. So they're saying that's the sticking point. But as early as 2007, these ski jumpers who wanted to compete were beginning the process of filing a lawsuit uh, with the Canadian Human Rights Commission claiming that um, basically the country of Canada was discriminating against them for their gender. That, you know, all this Canadian money was going into building all the facilities for the Olympics mm-hmm. and then women weren't going to be allowed to use them solely because of their gender. And um, in all the in all the buildup, people were kind of saying this is sort of a long shot case. But, you know, if we don't allow women to ski jump now, then a lot of women are probably going to give up the sport because they I mean, you know, if the Olympics is the pinnacle of athletic success, then what do they have to work for? Right. And women's ski jumping in general has been pretty poorly funded. There have been you know, stories from these female Ski jumpers saying that, yeah, they've toured around doing competitions, but they might have to stay in, you know, sketchy hostels or barns. Even one girl had to stay in a barn. Um, so it's not like they're, they're raking in a lot of cash, Mm -hmm. but if you get it on TV during the Olympics, um, there's a, there's a good chance that, you know, some more sponsorship money would probably come in. So in 2009, the Supreme Court of British Columbia did agree that it was a discriminatory situation. However, um, they concluded that the the ban didn't um, impinge on their rights. Well, they also said basically that Canada didn't have the right to regulate the IOC. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what we've got the people running the Olympics are subject to no to no court of law. And the, I mean, I think it's pretty unique that a judge would say yes, these people are you know being denied solely because of their gender, but. You know, it's not necessarily a breach of Canadian charters because of because of the regulation by the IOC. And the IOC will vote up or down different types of events with every new Olympiad. For instance, in London 2012, they're going to allow women's boxing I know, that for is the first time. To look forward to. Yeah, and they're opening up um, rugby and golf. Mm-hmm. Also, for um, I think it's gonna those are going to be two new sports in general, and they'll be open to both women and men. But they're doing away with baseball and softball, squash, and some other pretty standard events. It seems like there's this universal universality clause that kind of is tripping people up because the Olympics in for this 2010 games are saying there's not enough ski jumpers to make it, you know, a, a rational Olympic worldwide sport. And that's what they're saying about softball. They're saying that, you know, softball is such an American sport mm-hmm. that, you know, what right do, you know, we have to call it a worldwide sport, I guess. But I don't, I think that's kind of silly. Yeah, it's a little questionable. Um, but maybe now, though, it's time to uh, talk a little bit about the media's interaction with the Olympics because it's such it's such a TV event. Right. You know, I mean, not many people, unless you're living in Vancouver, or London or in our case in around Atlanta, you don't go to the Olympics. You watch it and you watch Bob Costas for like two weeks straight. Yeah, and I hope old Bob mentions mentions the women's ski jumpers. I hope that people sort of keep them in their hearts, even though they won't be there competing. Um, 
this year. But I, what was amazing to me, uh, we found this article from 2008 in the New York Times, is that everyone watches the Olympics, especially women. Yeah, women from, what is it, 18 to 39 are the core Olympic demographics. And I kind of wonder if that affects sort of the Olympics packaging we get, because on the one hand, I really love those human interest stories. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, after you've, after you've watched 30 people, you know, kind of overcome a fault and then right. they're going to compete and then they're going to cry when they win. Mm-hmm. You're sort of like, just show me the event. Yeah. But I wonder if that storytelling has something to do with the fact that they think a lot of women are watching and need like a backstory before they can watch sports. Well, I certainly hope not because, well, I, I will say that my watching uh, football, I've actually been watching a fair amount of football this season, mm. uh, Go Saints. <laughs> um, and they do the same type of thing with um, with football games where they'll, you know, go to the quarterback's hometown and talk about, you know, his rocky upbringing and how he overcame obstacles. So it might not just, it might not be just because of the female demographic, but just to give you an idea of how many women are watching this for the 2004 summer games, women made up women, I think 18 to 39 made up 50% of the viewership. Whereas with the Super Bowl, they make up about 39%. See, I prefer watching the Super Bowl because there are better snacks Ooh, and better commercials. Snacks. Speaking of commercials, Olympic advertisers know that women are tuning in. So keep an eye out and see what kind of lady-friendly ads you see. Especially during, like, ice skating events, I bet. Yeah. But, I mean, they were doing this tracking of the kind of ads that were running um, during the uh, 08 games. And it was just, you know, it's such stereotypical lady stuff, like uh, prescription drug for treating osteoporosis and reducing the risk of breast cancer, mascara, Venus Embrace Razor. The movie Mamma Mia. But even though we, there are so many women who are watching these games, by and large, are we watching women on the screen in front of us, Molly? No. No. There is new research out in 2010, just last month, about how the media coverage on the Olympics is wildly skewed towards men. Yeah, this comes from the University of Alberta. Um, Perko Marcula is the researcher. And she analyzed media coverage of athletes um, during and around the Olympics. And she found that uh, before the Olympics, female athletes received only 5% of coverage. 5%. 5%. Men got 87.6% of the coverage. And then during the Olympics, it bumps up to women receiving a whopping 25.2% of the media coverage, whereas males got um, 40.2%. And the female games that she said got the most attention were these stereotypically feminine games. Obviously, like we were talking earlier, like gymnastics, mm-hmm. I'm sure figure skating will be big this year. Um, things like diving, volleyball, not things like the track and field events that Alice Milliot fought so hard to get into the Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the coverage, media coverage on female athletes will focus a lot on their appearance, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, she was saying that she was interested, uh, the researcher Marcola was saying she was very interested to see what would happen in the Winter Olympics versus the Summer Olympics. Because, you know, now women wear such skimpy clothes during the Summer Olympics. Would they get any different coverage if they were wearing, you know, like a ski suit? Yeah. They're a little, I, I don't know what the term is, but, you ski know. Ski suits are pretty tight, though, Molly. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. They sometimes don't leave anything to the imagination. Yeah, no. But all the same, if you're hoping to glimpse some bare arms... <laughs> This isn't the games for you. Hold off till 2012. 
Speaking of bare arms, you know, we wanted to do this sort of Olympics preview, talk about women in the Olympics. And so I did some searching trying to find, you know, the best female athletes we should all be keeping an eye on so that we could bump up the numbers of women watching women on television. Mm -hmm. You know what you get, Kristen? What? You get a lot of lists like sexiest female athletes in 2010 Mm. or like sexiest Olympians, hottest Olympians. Every single list you'll try and find all has to do with the appearance, just as Markula is saying. But we did track down one list of some uh, some U.S. athletes, female athletes to watch, at least. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm not very surprised that the sexiest athletes came up. And one of these um, one of these athletes who is one to watch it was probably on a number of those lists. Her name is Gretchen Bleeler. She's a snowboarder. Mm-hmm. And she also dabbles in modeling as well. And fashion. She's d- designed a line with Oakley. You know, and I Google imaged her. I'm not going to lie. I was curious. <laughs> and she's attractive. <laughs> I didn't Google image I- image any of these, but um, I was pretty interested with the story of Hannah Teeter, who will be snowboarding. And she won gold in 2006, so she'll be going for another gold. But what was kind of cool about her, the story that I'm sure they'll build up if they show her on television, is that she also runs a charity called Hannah's Gold and donates all her snowboarding prize money to the charity supporting a village in Kenya. It's very nice. And uh, I think we should also mention yet another snowboarder. It seems like snowboarding, women's snowboarding, is going to be quite the sport to watch. Which is why it's so weird that, like, snowboarding is okay, but ski jumping's not. I know. It makes no sense to me. Anyway. Um, Yeah, we also have Lindsay Jacobellis, Mm -hmm. um, who is a two-time world champion and two-time world cup champion. Um, And they think that they're going to, she's going to give Hannah Teeter a run for her money. But sisterhood, ladies. Whatever, man. The Olympics. <laughs> gold is a goal. You can't share gold, Molly. What? But you know, it's all it's all for country, right? Love of country and pride in the U.S. Something like that. Um, like we said, we had kind of a hard time finding the female athletes to watch during the Olympics. So that's why we need you guys. Let us know which female athletes rock it in 2010. The ones that grab your heart and your national pride. And this was pretty U.S. centric. So if you you are one of our international listeners. Let us know who we should be looking for overseas. And if there are any kind of unconventional events aside from figure skating, you know, that are really, that you guys are really jazzed about watching, such as what's the ice racing one where they race speed around? Skating. Speed skating. Yes. Speed skating is one of my faves. Okay. For winter games. And luge. <laughs> so I like to say it like that. I've always liked bobsled from my young childhood days watching cool runnings. runnings. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Well, guys, but um, let us hear from you. Your yes. Olympic hopes, dreams, and wish lists. In the meantime, I got a little listener mail to read here, Molly. Okay. We've got one here from Sarah, and this is in response to our podcast on cheating. And she said, uh, I believe you said that there is no evidence of strict genetic monogamy in mammals, only social monogamy. Um, as an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I worked in the lab of Dr. Catherine Marler, and she studies the monogamous mouse species, Paramiscus californicus. This species has been scientifically proven to exhibit strict genetic monogamy. Not only are they genetically monogamous, but the father shares much of the responsibility of rearing the young. 
The reason I wrote this email is because the species of mouse is frequently overlooked in pop culture discussions of monogamy. Genetic monogamy in the animal kingdom is extremely rare, and I wanted to get the word out there that it does exist. So, Sarah, thanks for enlightening us. Yeah, she also included the cool fact that um, if one of the mates in this in this mouse couple dies, the remaining mouse will not will not search another mate. Oh. Will remain faithful till the day he or she dies. How sweet. Um, I want to include um, a little bit. I'm not going to read one listener mail, but we had a lot of only children write us, Kristen. Mm, yeah, we did. And they wanted to know how the podcast, uh, does birth order affect personality? How did that affect them? And I think we kind of skipped over only children, but I think if I may engage in stereotypes for a minute, I don't want to diss any of the people who wrote in. Go for it. But if you wrote in asking how you as an only child were affected by this podcast, then you might be fulfilling a stereotype of an only child. <laughs> because it is all bad news, people. G. <laughs> Stanley Hall, who is the founder of child psychology, called being an only child a disease in itself. Ah, that's him talking, not me. And the stereotype is that only children are spoiled, selfish, bratty, lonely, and maladjusted. Because they have no siblings to help them understand the world. Oh man! But I don't. But again, as we proved with most of our birth order podcasts, a lot of that stuff is a little bit of hooey. Yeah, take it with a grain of salt. It's a little crazy, so I certainly don't want to imply that any of our listeners are spoiled, selfish, bratty, lonely, or maladjusted. But there was one thing I was reading an article on ABC News. There is one thing where only children really seem to benefit. And it's um, intelligence scores. Ah. I mean, the thinking is that they don't have to compete for any attention. They've got two parents looking out for them at all times and that it helps when it comes to school. But, you know, yeah. there are positives, positives and negatives to being an only child, just as there are positives and negatives to being everything but a firstborn. Firstborns <laughs> just have a great. Uh, just I'll joshing. leave it there. I'm just going to drop it, Molly. Just joking. So, guys, if you would like to email us, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. As always, you can check out our blog during the week. Um, it's called How To Stuff. And we have some great articles on how the first Olympics worked and some fun articles on the Beijing Olympics as well. If you want to head over and check those out, you can find them at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?